All right, good morning. Um, before we begin, I did want to make a, a quick announcement. I didn't mention it last week. Um, we mentioned the Fusons Place membership last week uh, with us, but I wanted to uh, acknowledge Ron and Meredith. Uh, they've been worshiping with us for a while now. And uh, Ron and Meredith, if you want to wave to everybody. This is Ron and Meredith. If you want to uh, welcome Ron and Meredith. Like I said, they've been with us for a while. Uh, they placed membership uh, earlier this year, and we just wanted to acknowledge them this morning. Uh, thankful that you are, are officially uh, a part of, uh, just want to associate with us, our, our weirdness and all the things that we got going on here. So thankful for Ron and Meredith. So uh, good morning and happy new year again. <coughs> I'm choking a little bit. Very thankful that uh, the holiday season's kind of come to an end a little bit. It might be a little bit sad. Tomorrow's Michelle's birthday, so I get to celebrate a little one more, one more time, and I'm excited about that. But I know it's kind of a time to reset and refocus. I'm not going to recap, but I want to remind you all that we are studying the book of Luke. It's been a while since we've kind of been here together this morning. But we are going to be in Luke chapter 7, so please have your Bibles open there because we're going to spend a lot of time there this morning. A lot of reading, a lot's going on this morning in Luke chapter 7, so I want to jump right into it, okay? So we're going to, I want you to get to know three different people, uh, a few more than that, but three key figures here that happen to pop up in Luke chapter 7. And I want you, as we read these through, through these uh, stories and through these verses, I want you to kind of create a profile in your mind of these different people, okay? Just have different things that stick out to you, whatever they might be. Just kind of build a profile in your mind of who they are and what's going on, okay? So in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not, have, why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servants will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So we are introduced to this character, the centurion. You've probably heard this story before, but I'm compelled just as Jesus is compelled by the faith of the centurion, right? What do we learn about him, right? He is a righteous man, it seems like. He is most likely, yes, he's a Gentile, right? He's working for the Roman government. They wouldn't probably allow him to be Jewish, but nevertheless, he is a righteous man. And even though he is a Gentile, he seems to have great respect for the Jewish people, and especially Jesus, right? He says that I'm not even worthy to really come into your presence. He sends some of his Jewish friends to kind of be advocates for him, and not just for him, but for the thing that he's asking for, right? For his servant, for his, uh, for his uh, co-worker here, right? And so he sends out these people, and he's very respectful. He doesn't seem even to be worthy to be in front of Jesus. He is an ally to the Jewish people, right? 
And when I read this story, it should remind us of something that's already taken place in the Gospel of Luke, right? It reminds me also of the friends who brought their paralyzed friend to be with Jesus, right? When they beat through the roof to get to Jesus. And what did Jesus say? That he's compelled, he's, the example of faith these people have is what heals this man, right? The faith of the friends heals this man. I see kind of a similar thing taking place here, that Jesus is compelled by the sincerity of the faith of the centurion, right? This non-Jew who has this great faith in Jesus. It should also kind of remind us of Luke chapter 6, what we did study three weeks ago, right? When it talks about being a friend of those who might not be your friend, right? Being a friend of enemies. And for all intents and purposes, this centurion should be a quote-unquote enemy, right? He's a Roman centurion. But he's kind of defying the stereotypes, right? He is kind of showing maybe in a way this a great example of what Luke 6 is talking about, right? Loving your enemies, being allies with the people who the world does not expect you to be allies with, right? He's kind of manifesting what Jesus talked about in Luke 6. All this is taking place here, and I see this kind of beautiful image of of this faithful follower who isn't really even a follower, but is doing a lot better following than some people we're going to meet later on. Okay, so that's the centurion we meet in Luke chapter 7. Continuing on in Luke 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large group from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the buyer where they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And we meet this woman, the widow of Nain. And right, we really don't know a whole lot about her story. We don't know really what's taken place. Or maybe she's, lo- she's obviously a widow. She's lost her husband. and Maybe she's lost other children. Who knows? But this is a very, very obviously sad scene that Jesus is kind of walking into. He, this mother mourning the loss of her son, literally her son being carried away right, by a large group who is, who is probably mourning along with this mother. And all we really know about this woman is that she's in an incredible amount of sorrow. Right? She's feeling this pain that many people probably have felt along with her, alongside, but nobody wants to experience, right? This deep sorrow and regret of losing the last kind of benefactor you have on this planet, right? Thinking about the, just from that perspective, she is alone, right? She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have kids to take care of her. She is alone in a pretty desperate situation. And Jesus sees her and he's compelled and says, do not cry. And he intervenes in this woman's life. And again, I'm brought back to Luke chapter 6. Right, Because Luke has this, we call it the Sermon on the Plains, right? And what does he say? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Right, we talked a couple weeks ago about how Jesus, in this place, is not just concerned with the ethereal, right? These heavenly things that are going to happen eventually, Right? Jesus is concerned with the here and now. 
And he sees this woman, he's compelled by her sorrow, and he acts now because he cares that she is mourning now. She cares that she's lost, or he cares that she's lost something, and he is mindful of her present pain and suffering. And he's compelled and he has to intervene. The winnow of Nain, kind of, the grace of God is kind of happening to her, right? It's very different from the centurion. She's not going and asking, it's just happening to her. But I see Jesus kind of living out this Luke 6, blessed are those who mourn now because I do care for you. The last person here in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. The sinful woman. What many of us would consider a very awkward situation, I'm sure. Right? You're sitting around eating dinner, and this woman who probably everybody recognizes busts through the door with all this perfume, weeping, and is now anointing the feet of Jesus with her tears. That's strange. Is it not? It is very strange. It's kind of, I, I'm kind of putting myself in the position of somebody else reclining at the table, and I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. Maybe it's not just with the action, but it's like, I know who that is. We all know who that is. That's the sinful woman. That's the woman that we know is getting around doing things she shouldn't be doing. But she's in this house now, and she's interacting with Jesus, and something's happening here. And what I take away from this, the sinful woman, this profile we're trying to build, is that she was in hot pursuit of Jesus because she recognized he's the only one that could do something about this life that she's living. Right? This is a desperate situation, not dissimilar from the widow of Nain, right? In a way where she is, the widow of Nain is desperate. She has nothing else in her life. She is alone. I can see the sinful woman in a similar place saying, God, I got nothing. I am at rock bottom, and I need you to intervene right now, and I'm going to do something crazy, and i got to be next to you, Jesus. I can see her heart through all this. I can see all this taking place, uh, but it's so interesting what Jesus does in this place, and he says this to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus sees this situation. He's not feeling awkward like I might feel awkward. He says, you know what? She needs something that nobody else can give her. And it's forgiveness. And when I read these different profiles, these different people, Luke, Luke 7 kind of, run, it's a, kind of like a run-on miracle working, right? I see one thing that combines all these three different people. Very, very different circumstances. Very, very different people, Right? But there is one thing that I think unites all these people. We're going to get to that a little bit later. But in the middle of all this taking place of the centurion, the widow of Nain, the sinful woman, in the middle of all of this, we kind of run into our friends, the Pharisees, again. Okay, our, our friends are up to something here in the middle. And uh, there's a little bit of confusion with Jesus. And it's not just the Pharisees who are confused. It's actually John the Baptist who's also confused. It seems that John the Baptist, he sends some people to Jesus to say, are you really the guy that we've been waiting for? 
And you might be sitting here, wait, John the Baptist, you baptized Jesus. Remember that? Why are you forgetting at this place that Jesus is not, you know, or, or excuse me, that Jesus is the Son of God? Why are you having difficulty with this? But I think it goes to show you that time is long, depending on how, how you're living it, right? I can expect that over time, John the Baptist is looking at the actions of Jesus, and he's like, wait a second. You're not exactly what I expected to be happening, right? Because what were the people expecting Jesus to be? The next David. They were expecting Jesus to be some sort of military leader for the Israelites to overcome their captors once again. And Jesus is not acting like that whatsoever in their eyes, right? And so John the Baptist sent some people. The Pharisees are confused all about what Jesus is up to. Everybody, the teachers of the law are confused. And then Jesus says this, which I think is hilarious. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare to the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all of her children. And I like this section of text because it kind of gives us a glimpse at the life of the people living during this time, right? He actually tells us a game that kids would play, right? If you were hanging around in Israel at this time, the the two games that were really popular for kids to play was wedding and funeral. Literally, that's what he's saying, wedding and funeral. The kids would get together and they would play wedding and the kids would get together and they would play funeral. I guess they didn't have Die Hard or or any action movies yet to to, to be compelled by, but they are playing wedding and they're playing funeral. And what Jesus is saying here is that you guys are like kids. You're playing this pipe, but I'm not ready to play wedding. Or, or, or you weren't ready to play wedding, or whatever's going on. I played, or I sang a dirge, I sang a sad song, but you weren't ready to play funeral. Right? You weren't ready to play the game that I wanted to play at that particular time. Jesus uses this to show a major problem with the Pharisees' philosophy of life, of their entire image of God, of their entire understanding of what God is up to. And I read this, and I see what the Pharisees are going through, and I immediately am brought back to about, I would say, 2015 to 2018, maybe 2019, 2020, maybe even still happens today. Uh, but if, you're a, if, you have a, if you have kids in your life and you love to play with kids, at some point in your life, you've probably had a lightsaber fight with a child. I had so many lightsaber fights with my kids, especially Jay. He loved to hit me with things and still to this day does. And so we would have these lightsaber fights when he was a kid, and when he was really little, we got the, the ones that like shoot out like that, and they, they're really awesome, and, and you're hitting each other with the lightsabers, and it's a great time. And of course, when I'm hit with the lightsaber, I'm going full on, Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, I am in the moment, okay? I am being sliced in half by this child. I'm experiencing pain and torment. I'm saying, no, please don't cut off my arm, He's, and he cuts off my arm, right? He's ruthless. And so as we're playing, you know, and, and I'm getting my, my legs chopped off, and as I'm falling down, my, and one last effort, I'm going to hit him with a lightsaber. But silly me, there was a force field. <laughs> like, there was a force field so that even when I hit him, he was fine. 
because the force field stopped the lightsaber from slicing him in half. And so as we play more and more, I would hit him when we're just starting. Oh, there's a force field there. I'm like, man, I should have seen the force field. Or I'm trying to use the force on him, and he's like, wait, that doesn't work on me. And it happened over and over and over again, and to the point where I was like, Jay, you have to buy into the game, man. If I hit you in the arm, you've got to lose an arm. If I hit you with the leg, you've got to lose a leg. We've got to play fair. And he didn't like that, right? He wanted the force fields and all the magic. And of course, that's, that's just being silly, but if you ever play with kids, that's how it always happens, right? It always happens. Like, oh, that didn't work on me. Or even when you're playing sports or something like that, and it's, you, you miss it, it's like, oh, the game, no, no, there's, there's 10 seconds left, right? You have all these different ways in which kids always want to change the game when it's not going their way. Kids want to change the game when it's not going their way. They want to change the game to suit their own desires. And this is the Pharisees' problem. So they wanted John the Baptist or whoever this Messiah or figure was going to be to be exactly what they expected him to be. And Jesus is saying here, guess what? John the Baptist is a little strange. He lives in the woods and he eats bugs. And you didn't like that. But then when I come and I'm eating and drinking with you, you also didn't like that. You keep changing the rules of what you expect your Messiah to be like. You keep changing the rules of what you expect this prophet to be like. And that's not what God's up to. Jesus is this game changer. He literally is, right? He says, I, I, I just uh, referenced this, but Jesus changes the entire game that's being played, right? The Pharisees weren't ready for it. They want to change it. They want everything to be the way they expect it to be. But Jesus says, no, I have something else in mind. They meet these people called by God, and they still say, no, thank you. We're waiting for something else. And we can look at the Pharisees, and we can look at John the Baptist and the question and say, man, how could you be so silly? How could you miss out on what Jesus is doing? How could you possibly read the Old Testament and know it so well and not see what Jesus is doing as this, the, the fulfillment of all these prophecies? How could you be so silly? But the problem is we do the exact same thing. You know, he wasn't the Messiah they had in mind, and sometimes Jesus isn't the Messiah that we have in mind. We do the exact same thing, and unfortunately, we might even be playing the entire game the wrong way. We might be setting up these things to make Jesus into this thing that he's totally not. And my question is, how could we miss it? Not how, the, how could the Pharisees miss it. Not how could John the Baptist have some questions every now and then. Not how could the apostles have questions every now and then. But how could we miss it? We know the end of the story already. We see how everything plays out. For thousands of years, this story has been told, lives have been changed, and we're sitting here today, but we're still playing the wrong game sometimes. We still miss it. We want to be the people who are at church every Sunday. We're at every church event. We're volunteering, and we're doing all these things. But guess what? We can still even miss it then, maybe even more so. We often want to define what we believe to be the thing, the important thing. We want to make it about whatever we want to make it about. And I want you for a second, if you were brought up in the church, I want you to think about what your grandparents thought, were, thought was important about church for a second. Think about the thing that your grandparents or your mom or your dad or your uncle or whoever brought you to church, think about what they thought was important about church. Was it all that serious? No. <laughs> 
Sometimes my grandparents would get so mad about the most random thing. And today I'm saying, man, I can't believe they were so caught up in that thing that they were caught up in. But guess what our grandkids are going to say about us? (laughs) The exact same thing. And I'm not like trying to get to this to say that we have to get it right because guess what? We're just not going to. We're not going to get it 100% right this side of heaven at all. But what I'm trying to do is to help us to recognize that we aren't going to get it right. To acknowledge the fact that we aren't going to always get it 100% right. But the thing that we can do, we're never going to get it right, but that is the reason why the, the people that we talked about before are so important to the story. Okay, right? Because we talked about the Pharisees. They're playing the wrong game. Jesus changed the entire game. But Jesus gives us, gives us an example in this very chapter at how to combat all this indecision and all this confusion. It's the things that they do here, right? The things that the Roman centurion do, the things that the widow of Nain do, the, the thing that the sinful woman all have in common, that one thing that I said that, conti- that, uh, that uh, combined all their attributes and all their situations together is this. They all authentically surrender their burdens to Christ. All authentically surrender their burdens to Christ. And I feel like I make this point all the time, and sometimes I get caught up in my own head, I say that too much, but the Bible says this all the time, so I don't feel so bad. This is what disciples do from the beginning of time to today. They authentically surrender their burdens to Christ. If you look at the lives of the Pharisees, this is not what they're doing, right? They're following around Jesus saying, how can we get this guy? They're focused on the wrong game. They're singing the dirge, but they're, they're wanting to play wedding. They're wanting to sing or play the pipe, but they're wanting to play funeral. They're all confused, and we are confused. But when we return to this, all that confusion kind of goes away. When we stop making things about what we want to make them about and say, you know what, I'm not saying it's not important, but this is the important thing. Authentically surrendering your burden to Christ. When I look at the life of the Roman centurion, he has every reason not to go to Jesus. His well-being, maybe even respect among the people that, he, that, he's, uh, over, uh, um, that he lords over, I don't know, it works for, I don't know. The Roman government... They probably don't love the fact that he's sending people to go talk to Jesus. He has everything to lose. But in that moment, he says, the only person that can do anything for my situation is Jesus. I have to get to Jesus. Now, the widow of Nain's a little bit different because, like I said, she doesn't actually go to Jesus. But the fact is that she is in such a place where it seems that she can't go anywhere. Her sorrow is so felt that Jesus has to intervene. And I guarantee there are people in this room right now that have felt the same way that she is feeling in this moment. But it's that authentic surrender that Jesus says, I need to do something about that. I need to intervene into what she's going through. And I, and I look at the sinful woman, that is authentic surrender, you know, the poster child of authentic surrender. I don't care what people think. I don't care what is going on around me. I have to get to Jesus, and I have to do this today. Authentic surrender to Jesus. And not just, you know, when times are good, but the burdens that you're experiencing. That's what kind of levels out all this confusion. I'm not going to go through all the things that church people like to get mad at each other for, 
There's a long list we could, we could probably go over. There's probably things in the back of your mind that you're thinking about me right now that you don't like all that much. That's okay. I'm fine with that. And we can get really upset about these things. Churches can get split over it. Churches cannot talk to one another because of very, very specific things. But what I find is that when we actually get through all that confusion and those games that we like to play, and we get back to this, everything seems a lot more simple. I just, I, I hope that you guys have experienced this going through Luke, that Jesus has this magnetic personality. Not because he's charismatic, not because he's a good-looking guy, but it's because there's something about him that lets people put their barriers, or their walls down, and just totally and completely come to him. Totally and completely surrender everything to him. Right? My, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what he wants us to experience in his presence. And that's what I want to call you guys to this morning. So all this to say, we are part of this story. We are part of this game that's going on. Are we choosing to play our own games, right? And I want to leave you with these two questions <coughs> this morning. If you need to, you know, write them down or, or whatever, I want you to authentically think about this, intentionally think about these things. What game are you playing? And what story are you writing? Are you playing the game where you are making Jesus this person that he's not? <clears throat> are, you, are you spreading the gospel of you and using Jesus as the figurehead for it? Are you experiencing something in your life where you're writing the story, but you're not really sure where it's going? I want to invite you to Luke 7. I want to invite you to these faithful people who, at the very core, are saying, God, I need you to do something about this because I can't do anything about it. I want to invite you to that story this morning. Let's pray. <coughs> God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for these people. I thank you for Luke 7, and I thank you for um, these kind of characters that pop up that just show us what real faith looks like. And I also thank you for the other example where people can be confused, God, because it's not just the Pharisees, but it's us. We get confused. We want to play our own game. And we want Jesus to go along with it. God, help us to refute that. Help us to put that away. Help us to recognize that you are writing a story. You are, you are putting us in a direction to ultimately serve you forever. God, help us to be about that story and dismiss any other story or game that we might be up to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we want to invite you this morning. If you have trouble with surrender, guess what? You're not alone. That even that word has terrible connotations, connotations of weakness, that you're not able to complete whatever you've set out to complete. But guess what? That's the only way into the kingdom of God. Like, you're not going to do it by yourself. So if you're having trouble surrendering, please let somebody help you along the way. If you're saying, I need to surrender, yes. Make that commitment today. If you want to come forward, we're going to have people up here to receive you. But if you want to get in the back or whatever, there's elders in the back every single Sunday. If you don't want to talk to any of us, I, I encourage you to talk to somebody, right? Talk to somebody today while we stand and sing.